0: I do know that nobody really wanted to pick a fight with the NBA or go into any kind of competition because they were big and heavily moneyed. I remember Jack Kent Cook, who owned the Lakers, called me and said, look, as a friend I want to advise you to don't be involved with the ABA. Don't put any money. It's not going to succeed. He said there was an American basketball league that tried to do the same thing that you're going to be part of, and they failed and lost a lot of money. And uh, I would just advise you to to not get involved in that enterprise. Well, when I talked to George Mikan and my partner and a couple other owners, uh, they said, what do you think he's going to tell you? Yeah, come on in, and (laughs) the water's fine, and you're going to make us all have to pay more money for our players. He was just discouraging you. Well, I really think looking back, Jack Kent Cook was, was trying to give me some good advice because the league did not wind up succeeding, but we made some great contributions, like the three-point play. There was no three-point play, a three-point shot until the ABA. And there was no George Girvin that anybody knew and no Dr. J, for goodness sakes, Julius Irving. I mean, these players came into the NBA through the ABA.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Uh, Yes, again, the dulcet tones of Corey Coates. Yes, introducing us to another fun-filled and exciting episode in our little podcast journey that we like to call Good Seats Still Available. Yes, the curious little podcast journey that is focused on what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming by, stumbling across our little podcast, giving us a listen, uh, especially during the uh, holiday weeks. Uh, we're dropping this episode on uh, Christmas morning, 2017, and uh, we uh, certainly appreciate you doing so and uh, absconding from your family and friends for an hour and change to uh, to listen in our little uh, our little treasure trove of forgotten sports history. Uh, and uh, we uh, we think we're going to delight you uh, to no end this week because we are joined by a very special guest. Yes, the inimitable, the legendary, entertainer extraordinaire, Pat Boone uh, is our guest. And um, our excuse to talk with uh, such a legendary uh, entertainment figure who's been uh, at it from the mid-1950s all the way through today and going very strong today, mind you, as you will hear. Uh, Pat is uh, not one to, uh, to rest on his laurels nor uh, be bored very easily. Um, our excuse to chat with Pat is, uh, of course... Uh, his ownership of the uh, American Basketball Association franchise, the, uh, one of the charter franchises, as a matter of fact, of that league in 1967 called the Oakland Oaks. Yes, they played in the Oakland Alameda Coliseum Arena uh, for two seasons, 67-68 and 68-69. And uh, those two seasons could not have been more diametrically different. And that's just part of the story, right? So uh, uh, the team literally was the worst team in the eleven franchise ABA in its first season, and we'll find out why. Uh, and literally went from worst to first, winning over uh, winning sixty games plus the ABA championship the following season, culminating in the championship run in nineteen sixty nine. Uh, but uh, as you will hear in our chat, not necessarily gangbusters at the gate, and uh, through a whole sort of series of events, you know Pat Boone and uh, his ownership stake was um, went through some trying times, shall we say, as did the uh, the franchise. Uh, and in many respects, the personal finances of Pat boone were were challenged and certainly uh, in trouble uh, literally because of this franchise. And we'll hear some of the the harrowing stories, and frankly, some of the the fun and exciting uh, moments of of that ownership journey uh, with our guest, Pat Boone. The legendary Pat Boone coming up in just a couple of seconds. Stay tuned, please. Uh, Before we uh, get to our conversation, uh, we uh, want to remind you that our our sponsors this week, as they have been uh, for a couple of weeks now, are our friends at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And if you didn't get that special gift that you were hoping for under the tree or in your stocking or, you know, the spin of the dreidel, whatever it is, or whatever the excuse that you're supposed to get presents this holiday season... Uh, The chance to make amends uh, uh, exists now, and uh, we encourage you uh, to check them out at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And uh, there you will find a treasure trove of items, uh, paraphernalia, brochures, and ticket stubs, and uh, programs, and media guides, and pennants, and you name it. Uh, There's all kinds of fun stuff from teams and leagues, that uh, some of which still exist. Uh, but frankly, a whole bunch that uh, do not for whatever reasons, which is obviously our little our little uh, penchant here on this show. And uh, we think we found a uh, kindred spirit at sportshistorycollectibles.com dot uh, com and our friend Dean Mitchell there. And of course, if you go to said site, sportshistorycollectibles.com dot com and enter the promo code good seats, you're going to get 15 percent off your purchase. So what better way to spend some of that holiday cash or make amends for that gift that you just didn't get that you were hoping you were going to get? Uh, but somehow your family, your friends, your loved ones just didn't get the they, – they, they just didn't get the memo. Uh, your chance to make up for that is to go to sportshistorycollectibles.com, enter the promo code GOODSEATS, get your 15% discount and some fun stuff uh, in the realm of forgotten sports history. It's yours uh, for the taking. Give it a try. Sportshistorycollectibles.com. Thank you, Dean Mitchell and friends, and we appreciate your sponsorship. And we look forward to more in the new year for some fun promotional stuff that I think – We'll, uh, we'll have for our, our listeners uh, coming up. Okay, so uh, let's not waste any more time. Again, our very special guest and our great conversation with the one, the only, Pat Boone. Obviously, the, the focus of our little podcast here, uh, uh, silly as it might be, is on Various things in sports that, uh, for whatever reason, don't exist anymore, and uh, and and some of the history and, and stories and and reminiscences behind those, and and obviously your uh, your role, uh, not necessarily fully known or understood by these crazy kids today, right? Uh, and is yeah. clearly something we want to go back to, but maybe as a prelude, um, if you can sort of give our audience a bit of a a hint as to. You're you're basically from what I can tell a almost a lifelong passion for the sport of basketball. Maybe a little bit of the origins well, of that.
0: All all actually basketball, football, uh tennis, and baseball. Those and then eventually I became quite a a racquetball and sometimes squash devotee, but any any kind of sport that requires running and um and 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 in which you get a lot of exercise while you're having fun. And the, the the physical benefit, as well as the physical demand, is just coincidental to the game. I've always loved. I mean, I broke my collarbone bone in the high school on our baseball team, uh, sliding into second, <laughs> and, and then I broke my nose playing basketball in high school. Um, a guys' head bashed into my nose while I was defending him, and then uh, I turned. I had a wire mask uh, on me so I could play the remainder of the games for the season and this one time I grabbed the ball intercepted pass turned around whirled and shot at what I thought was the basket and it was the mask <laughs> on my face uh the uh, the uh, what what I thought was the rim of the basket was actually part of the mask to protect my broken uh, nose but uh but I was competent in uh, in all of those sports, tennis, basketball, golf, um, racquetball, and and whatever I've left out, uh, and and so I, I played all those sports and loved them all. I was captain of the baseball team and and a good hitter at a at the first couple of times at bat. Even when I was in grade school, I hit a home run first time at bat, and next time I got up, I hit another homer, and the next time they walked me. <laughs> Imagine. Walking you in your, in your the eighth grade, but but I just I've had some great sports thrills even in cricket, and uh, and certainly in basketball. Um, the only time I ever played cricket was in England at a charity match, and they had celebrities and former players, football, rugby, and cricket players. And uh, I was out on the field. I'd never played cricket before, and uh, of course they don't have gloves. And the ball is very hard. If it if it comes at you, you better have you better have a uh, conditioned hand. Well, I didn't. And Ted Dexter was the former uh, captain of the of the English. He was really like the Willie Mays of cricket, or the Babe Ruth. And uh, he hit a screamer at me, and I went down to catch this hot grounder, and you know instinctively tried to catch it in the web of my glove, not realizing I don't have a glove, and and it bashed into my hand and went right through my legs, and, and the, the guy ran for about six runs. You could keep running until the ball got back toward the, uh, the pitcher. So I was very embarrassed, well, so I went to the back of the big circular field. I didn't want that to happen again. But sure enough, Dexter lofted a shot that was going to go for six over me. And I said, well, I've got to make a stab for it. It's coming my way. And I jumped, but this with both hands. I wasn't going to try to catch it one-handedly. And I caught that ball, that cricket ball, out and caught him out. I caught out the great Ted Dexter. (laughs) And we came in for tea, thinking that everybody was going to congratulate me. Instead, everybody was very upset with me because they expected him, you know, in cricket, you can keep hitting until somebody gets you out. And uh, he'd known... He'd hit the century mark two or three times in his career, going for batting for 100 runs, nobody getting him out. And he was up to about 30 when I caught him out, and now that when I came in, everybody, instead of congratulating me, was really mad that I had uh, caught him out, and that ended that inning. So, but, uh, but still, for me, it was a fantastic thrill. But, you know, it's, it's been like that in my life. I've had, just as a participant... Uh, just some exciting thrills, basketball in
1: particular. So let, let, let's get into the, the basketball part because uh, obviously the, the whole prelude to the story of the Oakland Oaks, right, is is uh, almost rooted in your uh, your continued play of basketball. Your uh, this Hollywood League. Maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of of that, including the name, which I think I figured out the origin of, but perhaps is probably best described by you uh, and, it's, uh, and its source. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the, uh, the name was the Cougamuga All-Stars, and that was the name of my production company for TV and even movies. Uh, that was a, a phrase I had heard a black DJ in New York on WOR radio. He, he did a rhythm and blues show, and I would begun to listen to rhythm and blues. In fact, I was recording rhythm and blues, and we were calling it Rock and Roll. So I was listening to Jocko Henderson, on his show, which he called the the rocket ship, he liked to roll his R's. He says this is a great, great Kugamuga. Yes, it's great, and that was a phrase he often used. And so, uh, when I we had to come up with a name for my production company, I just said let's call it Kugamuga, and nobody wanted me to do that, of course. And but I insisted, and so we called it my, my TV production company Kugamuga. People say, well, they don't even know how to say that they. I said, no, maybe people, even if they didn't enjoy my show, they may tune in next week to see what was that crazy name at the end of his show. And, uh, but the show was a hit. It was, uh, it was sometimes number one in the in Nielsen's back then. And, um, and it ended, this has been a Cougamouga production. Eventually, I went with Sammy Davis up to uh, the Apollo Theater in Harlem to do a, he was doing a benefit with Count Basie, and he had me, he'd been on my show. He says, coming up with me to the show, and I went with Sammy. He had me sit in a box off the stage, and then, to my horror, he had me come down on stage and to to just wing something with the uh, with Count Basie's orchestra 'cause Sammy could do that anytime anywhere and i i I couldn't even remember the na- a uh, song to sing, but I picked up the lazy River, but i Sammy just went ahead and started it with Count Basie improvising, and it was in it, I think it was in Wayne Newton's key, not mine. So I had to sing it up the lazy river, down the old mill's stream, and uh, it was a real too high. It was a lousy performance. But anyway, when I talked to Jocko Henderson, the DJ, I said I named my production company after what you say on the radio. He said, "What's that?" I said, "Kugamuga." He said, "It's not Kugamuga. It's Gugamuga." <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's so true. you're erroneously quoting it the whole time, huh I called it kogamouga
0: and it was in in big bold print and then even i produce i was a co-producer on my film Journey to the center of the Earth and what? lived lived to see uh to see those that name in gold twentieth century fox letters the lion roars and uh no that's m g m but the drums are rolling, and then you see twentieth century fox in association with Kugamuga film <laughs> in those gold letters, and uh, presents a journey to the center of the earth. So, I had such fun just with that name, but also, I uh, also interviewed some great sports figures as well as entertainers on the show, and I was happy that I called it Kugamuga because then Jocko couldn't sue me or try to claim that I had used his name. Uh, for my production company, because I didn't. I used, I said, Cougamuga. His was Gugamuga.
1: So the little, the little uh, mistake that actually wound up saving you some bucks, that's good.
0: And and, and it was the Cougamooga All-Stars. And, and on some of our jerseys, which I looked at today, it said the uh, Pat Boone uh, Josephina's, which was a big pizza place, uh, Josephina's All-Stars. But it was actually always Pat Boone's Cougamooga Stars. And the names, of the people who played with me on that team in the, uh, that league, Bill Cosby, Rafer Johnson, Gardner McKay, Don Murray, Denny Tarzan Miller, players from the Rams and Dodgers like Ron Say, Steve Yeager, boy, he was a beast under the, under the uh, basket. He cleared out. <laughs> he was not the tallest guy, but he was a rough and scrabble player, and he cleared out the basket underneath. But Deacon Jones, Lamar Lundy from the Rams, Denzel Washington, Mark Harmon. I just was looking at one of our pictures, and there's Mark Harmon, the number one guy on TV now. Steve Garvey, Jimmy Walker. I saw Arsenio Hall dunk. I didn't believe, I wouldn't have thought. Arsenio's not really much taller, If maybe an inch taller than me, but he has a much heavier rear end. I wouldn't have thought he could have dunked the ball, <laughs> but I saw him do it. And I saw Jimmy Walker shoot a three-pointer from half court, and so we started him the second half and found out that he couldn't ever do it again in his whole life, but he just thrown it up to like a baseball pitch, and it went in. So uh, we had lots of fun. We were playing uh, high school coaches and and recent uh, players, some of whom have gone to play college basketball, and raising money for their local charities, and so... We had a, a league that did that, and we played in another league that was really a city league, and uh, and we we did very well. One night I was stuck in New York, couldn't get back for our uh, what was a semifinals league team a, play, a game, and I was I was in such anguish at not being able to get there. I almost chartered a plane, chartered a plane from New York to L.A. to get home in time for the game, but when I found out it was going to cost me like 300, three hundred three three thousand at least three thousand dollars to charter any kind of a plane that would get me there I decided they'd have to play without me and they did and they won but uh, but basketball was uh, really a passion for me
1: well so maybe you can give a, a bit of a sense of um, uh, what this league was all about uh, what, what does it compete with I mean uh, and, and it seems like it was going on for some time this your, your play, uh, with your professional peers uh, in this in this league, maybe you can describe what this league was all about, how how serious and competitive it was, or how fun it was by comparison.
0: Well, in the in the league that I, I mean the uh, the games and the team that I sponsored, the Cougar uh, because it was named after my production company, but uh, that was uh, we set that up specifically to to raise funds for good charities, local charities that had trouble. You know, raising money for their good causes, and so we we and we and it was also for our fun. Uh, but but we uh, we had uniforms, and we we would go to various high schools. We play as many as fifteen to twenty high schools in a season, and uh, we would play their coaches and their uh, so those uh, you know theoretically their coaches had played basketball, and uh, and then some of their recent players that had moved on to college or to uh, to even some other teams but but we had some really running good sc- high scoring fun games and you know because these were in some cases entertainers, we always found ways to to have laughs too but uh, but we raised a lot of money over the uh, I don't know five, six, eight years that we that we had the Mooga All-stars. and as I say, Really good athletes like Mark Harmon and Denzel Washington—they were actors. Mark wasn't an actor yet; he had just been the uh, All-American quarterback at UCLA. But Deacon Jones, Lamar Lundy—these were big guys—and it was great to have them as as your forwards. Steve Yeager as a center, and then other players that could uh, that were really good shooters. And and Bill Cosby was not a bad player. Rafer Johnson, Olympic athlete—he was. He could get up and down the court very well, and so I was in hog heaven playing with these uh, fellow entertainers, but also entertainers who loved the sport and were good at it.
1: So, take us back to uh, the the uh, the mid to late 1960s, right? So, uh, and I'm assuming that this uh, your your play was going on at that time. This was uh, the, the the basketball stuff, but in addition to your career, right at the time. Uh, you're, you're touring with the family. You've got, uh, a couple of albums out. Uh, you've got a couple of movies out. I mean, you're, you're, you're steady as she goes with, uh, with the career. I notice, uh, for, for example, things like the perils of Pauline, uh, and the cross Mm -hmm. and the switchblade, and, and this is sort of all going on around the time that this, uh, American Basketball Association thing is, is, uh, is stirring about, but perhaps before we get into that sort of, that sort of, that step, um, Perhaps uh, a couple of remembrances of, of of any of those projects, or you know what your career was like at that time. Obviously, you're still hitting the charts. Uh, you got a bunch mm-hmm. of, of songs and albums out. I think even, uh, if I'm not mistaken, if my uh, my homework is correct, um, uh, there's there's a, there's a actually a, a song that I was uh, uh, quite taken with, which uh, was your last uh, pop charting uh, hit in uh, in 1969. So this is about the time of uh, of the oaks called uh, july yeah. you're july you're a woman right written by yeah. written by john stewart of the kingston trio and and he have uh, of of uh, a couple of pop hits in the 70s himself um yeah maybe a little bit of a, a, an understanding of what your career was uh, like at that time and maybe why even this idea of possibly getting involved in a pro basketball ownership scenario was even a remote possibility in your mind
0: Well, Well, yeah, you've done some nice homework. I was uh, always very active, always with my finger in five or six pies at a time because I was eclectic in my interests, but also um, talented enough to do well in music. was having hit records, and and I continued to record right through the 60s into the 70s. Bear Family Records that does incredible work at collecting all the records that some an artist may have performed, did a whole 10-CD set of my—these are 10 CDs—over <laughs> 300 songs in the 50s. And then they did another whole set like that of my songs in the 60s. Uh, I think it was eight CDs then, but still a couple of hundred recordings. And so I was recording country and pop and gospel— and patriotic, and uh, and you know, I just was loving recording, but at the same time, uh, I was making the occasional movie. The Perils of Pauline started out to be um, a TV series. When it didn't sell, we just it lengthened it and made a movie of it, and um, and and I just was constantly involved in things like that. But but as for fun. Uh, I always stayed in shape, and I worked out in the gym and swam and rode my bike and all but i I looked for excuses to play basketball and we had that league and uh, and the kogamouga all stars so when when the a b a started up, uh there was a friend of mine I considered him a friend turned out he was not a great friend, but he <laughs> he interested me in in becoming uh one of the owners of the Oakland Oaks in the newly formed American Basketball Association. And we could have the Oakland franchise. And I was not going to invest money in it. I knew it was speculative. But still, I was very intrigued. And he said, look, I'll give you 10% if you'll let me call you the president of our, of our team, our group. He was putting together some other investors. So I said, sure, I'll take 10% and you can call me the president." And I, we did that, and it turned out eventually that, that he and I were the only investors. <laughs> but we put together a great team, uh, except that the, the NBA and Frank Muley of the Warriors wouldn't let Rick Barry, whom we, we had signed as our, as our lead player. Uh, they, they got a court and order injunction against Rick playing for us because uh, he had signed the reserve clause, which even if he decided not to play for the Warriors, uh, he was still he would owe them one more year whether he liked it or not. Our lawyers, the ABA lawyers, and they were very expensive and should know what they were talking about, decided that the uh, reserve clause was restraint of trade, preventing a performer like Rick, who was an all-star anyway, from playing where he wanted to play. And he had finished his contract, But and the reserve clause should not have been kept him from coming to us but the court which the case came to court in in San Francisco so guess what the local judge decided that he had to sit out the season or play for the Warriors so Rick decided to sit out the season he did not play for the Warriors and he just sat on our bench a highly paid player as our color man a color announcer and we lost uh, we finished last of 11 teams The next year, when he could play, we won the championship. And uh, the only problem was we weren't attracting enough uh, customers and fans to come to our games to make it profitable. We were really losing a lot of money. And, uh, And yet we had developed not only and won the championship, but we had great players like Doug Moe and Larry Brown, who both went on to become great coaches, great coaches in the case of Larry, and I think Doug, too, and then we had some uh, good players, like uh, Jelly Tart, we called him, Laverne. And then there was, a, a, a I think his name was Warren Armstrong. He, cha- he changed his name to Jabali. And, uh, of course, there was an incident that occurred, you may have read about or know about, where uh, he was very competitive, said he learned to play on the, on the cement court's in Chicago or somewhere, you know, playground ball and was where it was very rough and he uh, stomped a guy in the head on a fast break. I think he tripped a guy and then stomped on his head as he went by. And uh and he had to be uh he had to be benched. Uh and it was quite a quite a cause celeb there for a week or so. But actually we won I think 16 games in a row. We won the First championship by a professional basketball team on the West Coast before the Lakers did. And yet it was a money loser up until that point. And uh, I was very, very fortunate that a man named Earl Foreman, a, a banker and lawyer, flew out to San Francisco to meet with our banker at Bank of America and said, I want to buy the Oaks, I want to move them to Washington. We're going to put together a sports conglomerate. How much? And the, the banker, the startled banker, gave him a figure of several million bucks, and uh, which was very, you know, by today's standards, very low. But then it was, and and then an unproven league. Uh, so he said, "I'll take it, and I want a twenty million dollar line of credit. I want to put together a football team, a hockey team, and and a couple other te- soccer team, perhaps. And for these wealthy." Uh, um, lawyers and doctors back in the Washington area. So they moved uh, Rick Berry and the Oaks to Washington, D.C., named them the Washington Caps. After that, the Caps were moved to Virginia. They became the Virginia Squires. And then uh, the league folded, and um, and Rick went to the Nets for, I think, a season, and then back to San Francisco. He was reunited with Frank Muley and the Warriors, for a season or two, but of course he had played his best ball already. But boy, what a competitor Rick Barry was. And now he has had four sons that all played pro ball. He had great genes as well, <laughs> as, well as skills. But it was a, it was an exciting time.
1: Yeah, well, let me let me ask you how how did Rick Barry come into into focus as being somebody at a player that you and the and the franchise wanted to go after? Because it seems to me that the ABA in its earliest uh, thought process, right, was I, I think it it seems like there was kind of a split thought, I guess, amongst the owners and the founders about should we go after NBA talent uh, and this reserve clause thing, even though we think we've got a a legal challenge to do so, or should we mm-hmm. not? And obviously, it seems like, I think, in, your, in the first year, you, the the Oaks, were really the first. Obviously, Rick didn't play that first year. But the, getting him to sign from the NBA, you were truly, I think, the only one of the 11 franchises that started that actually was successful in getting a big marquee name like a Rick Barry. Why Rick yeah, and why that well, strategy?
0: You know, my memory is a little hazy, partly because I wasn't as involved in those decisions as Ken Davidson my partner was, he was, he was working with George Mike and the commissioner and and the other owners. uh, And I wasn't, I was going about my career, but, and you know, I had a 10% ownership at that point, which had been given to me. And I, I was proud of that, but I, I was too busy to take a a real active interest in the behind the scenes uh, negotiations and so on and deliberations. But uh, I do know that that nobody really wanted to pick a fight with the NBA or go into any kind of competition because they were big and heavily moneyed. I remember Jack Kent Cook, who owned the Lakers, called me and said, Look, as a friend, I want to advise you to don't be involved with the ABA. Don't put any money. It's not going to succeed. He said there was an American basketball league that tried to do the same thing that you're going to be part of, and they failed and lost a lot of money. And uh, I would just advise you to to not get involved in that enterprise. Well, when I talked to George Mikan and my partner and a couple other owners, uh, they said, what do you think he's going to tell you? Yeah, come on in, and <laughs> the water's fine, and you're going to make us all have to pay more money for our players. He was just discouraging you. Well, I really think, looking back, Jack Kent Cook was, was trying to give me some good advice because the league did not wind up succeeding, but we made some great contributions like the three-point play. There was no three-point play, a three-point shot until the ABA. And, and there was no George Gervin that anybody knew, and no um, Dr. J, for goodness sakes, Julius Irving. I mean, these players came into the NBA through the ABA, and we contributed the three-point play and the, the red, white, and blue basketball that the players loved, because, I mean, it, it seemed like playground in a way, but they loved to bank balls off the backboard. And boy, with the red, white, and blue color, you could really see that ball spinning. And, uh, and of course, the ladies took it over eventually. <laughs> but, you know, the three-point play was a great contribution to basketball. Ask Steph Curry.
1: Certainly. Oh no, no doubt. And 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 there's so many you know wild uh, uh, stories, but also just quality play. I mean, up and down and and, and offense and and clearly the NBA uh, uh, at that time, I think, and maybe even the years after, certainly could have used that kick in the butt to kind of sort of uh, make the product a little bit more interesting and fan friendly. And, fan-friendly and, and
0: yeah, there was more of a formula play and 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 uh, different types of defenses and offenses and that everybody seemed to use, but. The ABA gave a lot of uh, uh, freedom to players who could come flying through everybody with no no play, very improvisational, and uh, and score big. I mean, Dr. J, there's never been anybody quite like him, although uh, there have been some players who could suspend themselves in the air like he did, and certainly Michael Jordan. But, but Dr. J was electrifying to watch. And some of the other players were too and and it was just a wide open, almost like a playground kind of game where there was no there weren't so many set plays. it was just how can I get the ball to to the person who can get it in the basket or sh- how can I get there myself and so it was a rough and tumble exciting game to watch and and of course to play in and uh, when we we were introducing this three point play we were in la uh, sports arena with the la stars and um and we were showing the press you know this new thing the three point play from uh 20 what is 23 feet out and um and so i was shooting some myself cuz i was a point guard and i had to learn to shoot from outside because i couldn't jump with guys that were taller <laughs> so uh so I I was making more of the three-point shots than some of the other guys were cuz they weren't used to shooting from that far out. Well, uh you know, it caught on big and uh and became now a, a fabulous staple in basketball. I think that that the ABA made some real contribution. I was, although it was costly to me, it was uh I'm proud of it.
1: Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The 10-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called the National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to. And Audible's got it, by the way, two, uh two guests, perhaps that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again. Go to audibletrial.com/slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. I want to get some sense of, of sort of the beginning days when you you know the team first took the court. Um, you know, uh, obviously Rick Barry was not. For legal reasons, going to be able to play, so you figure out a way to sort of keep him involved. Obviously, his father-in-law was the coach, right? So it clearly seemed yeah. to me that that at least the first year was going. To, supposedly, the table was set for Rick Barry to be sort of the uh, the, the main draw and attraction, but that didn't that didn't sort of uh, pan out. And obviously, the the uh, the the team didn't do, uh, shall we say, to be charitable, all that well in the first season. But they,
0: <laughs> no, we finished last of eleven teams. And then to turn around and be the first of 11 the next year was obviously attributed to not just to Rick Barry, but because uh, we we moved Bruce Hale up to the general manager position and brought Alex Hannum from the Philadelphia 76ers, who was a great coach. I mean, there's a difference in coaching in college ball and in, in pro. And uh, Alex Hannum was a terrific coach, and, and that uh, – He fit with Rick Barry very well and all the other players, and I expect Larry Brown and Doug Moe learned a lot about coaching from uh, Alex Hannum, the the seasons that we were playing together.
1: Absolutely. I'm just really curious, when that first game happened in in 1967, um, you know, it Four thousand eight hundred and twenty-eight was the uh, paid attendance uh, in, in in an arena, right? Which uh, we've talked about in previous episodes with the uh, California Golden Seals, which also also shared the building. Um, it seems like that Oakland uh, proper and that and the brand new arena was a bit of a tough. Uh, draw i guess and in your case uh, immediately having to go directly against a well established uh, San Francisco Warriors franchise so i guess I, yeah. i'm just curious as to you must have been some mixed feelings that first game right the excitement the cra- you know the getting involved the league getting it was a first ever game and but the crowd wasn't sort of you know gangbusters and uh i'm just wondering what was going through your mind uh with this sort of new endeavor as it was getting underway
0: well i hate to say this i wasn't there <laughs> I tell you, I, I've i tried to add up how many games. Here I was, uh, first 10% and eventually 100% owner of the team, and we won the championship. And I don't think I attended more than 10 games. And that means there was something I was, you've heard of scalping tickets. Uh, I don't know if anybody ever paid something like 200 to $250,000 per game to attend. I got a good seat. Right down with the players, but but I was rarely at the games. It was it was a, a an investment. It was investment something I believed in. But they weren't building the the schedules around my entertainment schedule. So so often uh, I had to miss and let my partner Ken tell me how it went. There was nothing on TV, uh, and I knew we were in a you know beginning stage. It was going to take a while to to get the fans to follow us. Uh, and to to call us their team rather than the Warriors across the Bay. And there was great rivalry between Oakland and San Francisco, but, you know, the Warriors were the team at that time. So here we're introducing this newly formed team in a new league. And uh, it took a while. I knew it would take a while. So it wasn't a surprise to me that uh, it was poorly attended at first. I knew we were going to have to play exciting ball. And there wasn't a lot of crowd noise at, at our early games, I mean, you know, because the fans were sort of scattered out in, in big arenas. <laughs> and there was just no crowd excitement. There was just a lot of, of feet running up and down the court and dribbling and shooting and the players yelling at each other and that kind of thing. But it was it was an exciting beginning. We really believed we were going to build uh, a league and that uh, that we would grow. We just didn't have time to actually do that
1: did you have pause when you uh looked at uh at the uh, accounts receivable shall we say at the end of the first season and, and given how woeful the team had been on the court uh did you question your sanity and or your investment at that point or and or how did you sort of become convinced to keep going for a second year?
0: well i was ill informed I was not a good uh, sharp businessman about it. I was a fan. I was somebody who loved the game, and I I loved the the opportunity to build a new league and a, and to own a co-own a team. But as I say, I hadn't invested any money in it at that point. And Ken and his uh, he said his mother-in-law uh, was a widow and had a you know had a large uh, fortune of some size. And he said she's willing to bet the farm on uh, on this team. So he was he and the banker at the Bank of America. They had all the financial worries, and I was just sort of along for the ride. I thought, but they got me to sign, uh, co-sign some checks, and uh, and we would we would uh, we would borrow some money, and then we'd pay some of the money back to the bank to lower our line of credit, and it, it just kept going back and forth like this, and I. I would just sign some of these checks when uh, when Ken would put them in front of me. But, you know, he was obviously, I had the, a letter of indemnification that I was not going to be bound to any of the legal, or, or that is the uh, financial indebtedness or obligations. But I was just helping him by co-signing on these checks. I didn't realize that one of the times I co-signed a check, it didn't have a figure at the top. And just had my signature at the bottom. <laughs> and a time came in our after we won the championship, and we were building the second, the third season, that I get a letter from the bank—a very cool business-like letter. You owe us a million three hundred thousand, and we expect payment of that by Friday, or we're going to take uh, swift action against you because we need that million three. And that letter, that check—they sent me a copy of the check and And it a million three hundred thousand was written at the top in the banker's writing handwriting. It was not an official looking check. it was like you know somebody just wrote to another person, and yet it did have my signature at the bottom, and my lawyers I wanted to take it to court because I did had not knowingly signed a check for a million three, but they said, "Look, this is the bank of America. he's the vice president I said, but he's I've never met the man, and he's Never seen my financial statement. How could he be lending me a million three when he doesn't know if I'm worth a hundred and thirty dollars? He said, "Well, it's his name, voice, his his word against yours, and it's on the bank, a check of the Bank of America." In other words, I was stuck. And uh, at that point, my partner, because we had lost a lot of money, he'd gone as far as he thought he could go. He declared bankruptcy and left me holding the bag with the whole team and owing all that money. So I was really kind of up the creek, but at the same time, and this was one of the worst decisions of my life, Alex Spanos, uh, um, a very w- well-to-do businessman from Stockton, contacted me. I understand you own the Oakland Oaks outright, yeah. He said, I would like to have a partner. I said, I'd love it. He said, "Well, I I'd like to take over the whole team and I'll let you have 20%." And like a fool, I I I was suffering from some kind of hubris, thinking, "Well, wait a minute, this team we just won the championship. I can surely get partners, maybe I'll wind up being another uh um Jerry Buss <laughs> <laughs> or or uh, what's his name, Cook." And uh and I, I passed on that offer from Spanos, who went on then to buy the San Diego Chargers and not basketball. Uh, and, and I was stuck. Well, it was at that time when uh, the banker was starting to say, You owe us a million three. And, uh, and this guy, Foreman, flew in from Washington and bought the team. And suddenly, though I've never met Foreman, I never met uh, the banker, who supposedly lent me a million three without ever seeing my financial statement but I was out thank God I was out of it and uh, and and I it was just a miracle of God <laughs> but, but I got into it all and got into that mess simply because I loved the game I loved to play it I loved the the idea of owning something I loved the, the idea of promoting the league and and the whole whole new <clears throat> kind of aura about basketball um so I, I got my wishes and my dreams for about three years. After that, I was very fortunate uh, not to have been just priced right out of my socks. Uh, so I, I, I turned down then the opportunity that came my way to be a part owner of the Phoenix Suns and the Dallas Mavericks. Recently, I was on the Shark Tank, made the biggest deal in the history of Shark Tank, And with Mark Cuban sitting there, I said, you know, you and I are the only two guys in the room who once owned a basketball team. I've been a basketball team owner, too. Uh, Which he was not impressed, (laughs) because it was the ABA (laughs) and and the Oakland Oaks. But it was true that I had been the outright owner of a professional basketball team. And then when I made the deal for the car that runs on air, and it is a proven and a real thing. Tata Motors in India, one of the largest car companies in the world, if not the largest, is going into production on the car. And and um, the other shark, the younger, uh, Robert Hershevik, paid $5 million, or that is committed $5 million for 50% of the first plant to be built in Hawaii of the car that runs on, on highly compressed air. Sounds flaky, but it's not the inventor has 50 patents in Formula One racing, and he developed as, a, as a, a power and speed source, highly compressed air, controlled and computer controlled. And, uh, and so we made the biggest deal in the history, of the show to this moment, but Her- Hershevik went to dancing with the stars and got really serious about his dance instructor. His marriage broke up and he's never given me the courtesy of a call to cement the deal that we shook hands on. So now I'm going a different route with the air car. It's the future. It's going to happen, but not with Robert Hershevik. I got shark bit, but that's because I'm kind of a plunger, I guess. I mean, I I don't always investigate the future of something, of the immediate future. I look at the, the, the distant future, what it can be, and my wife says, yeah, you see the A's and the Z's, but you don't know the rest of the alphabet in
1: between. Uh, well, that, but that's entrepreneurship, though, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's that's also known as vision and uh, and having a, a sense of, of strategy and maybe where things are going. And, and there's a lot to be said for that. And look, let's
0: be... I've needed a good partner. I've needed a partner who really was the nuts and bolts guy. I'm the dreamer, and I'm the guy that can actually come up with some money to do something. But... Uh, but I need somebody to, to who really ride herd on the investment once I've made it.
1: Well, look, there's there's one thing though you can tell that Mark Cuban can't, right? And that is, you want an, you you want to you actually want a basketball championship, right? And um, <laughs> yes, and, and have the ring to show for it. And there there is there's video out there that that for whatever reason I don't know why there's a documentary that was done about the ABA that I don't think has actually seen the light of day. However. Um, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why and, and where it might actually someday live. But there, oh, uh-huh. there's a great interview with you, and you actually show the ring in this uh, conversation. You can find it on YouTube. And, and you uh, you regale, and it's a beautiful-looking ring, but um, maybe you want to talk about what you say. I think you talk about how expensive it was <laughs> relative to how many games you went. Uh, but it is a championship ring, right? And not a lot of it people can say It is a championship
0: ring, and it's brass and glass but beautiful, and it proclaims that we are the – a uh, American Basketball Champions of 1969, and and uh, and I always wanted to show it to Elizabeth Taylor, because Richard Burton had famously given her a couple of big diamond rings that might have cost eight hundred thousand, a million. Or I wanted I wanted to show her a ring and say, Liz, I've I've got a ring here that costs more than any ring that Richard Burton ever gave you. Uh, this one cost me about three and a half million, and it's brass and glass. But boy, <laughs> it it uh, it it's historic, <laughs> and I, I just never had that chance. I'd met Liz, but it was before I was involved with the uh, Oaks. I never saw her after that. But if if I'd known I was going to be in her company, I would have worn the ring, and just uh, had fun showing it to her.
1: So when you look at the ring, you think about it or you think about the team uh, and that period of time in your life, both professionally and as a, as a super fan and an owner, um, what are the emotions? Is it, is it positive? I mean, you won a championship. That must have been an amazing thrill and hard to replicate. Uh, do you think back about sort of the, those dark days and those moments when, you know, this sort of person you never even know in the name of Earl Foreman, you know, wound up saving your hide, so to speak? Um, yeah, you know, what is it? Mixed emotions. I, I guess it's kind of a, an understatement, right?
0: It is. That is. It is mixed emotions. Because as I say, it. Uh, I used to talk about when I the thought of the oaks, I felt this sharp pain on my left buttock, uh, just because that's where I carried my billfold. But because it was, it was costly, and it was a disappointment that I when I trusted my partner, who had told me that he had more than sufficient funding available and would see it through and then when he sort of participated with the banker in getting my name on a check that uh th- that with no amount filled in which when it when it was filled in was at least 10 times more than I thought I had assigned my name to uh you know that was a big letdown and a big disappointment so there were and then the lawsuit I had after that with uh, uh, the Frank Muley, the owner of the Warriors, who who uh, did take me and got a million-dollar judgment, though we settled it for $160,000, uh, against us persuading Rick to leave uh, the the uh, Warriors to play for us and sit out the season and, and to ignore his reserve clause. The judge in San Francisco found in Muley's favor. So all those things were disappointing to me and painful even. But when I look back and realize, hey, I was part of a historic thing, that we created a, a league that did succeed for a while. It, it, it made some contributions to the sport. And uh, and it's kind of a feather in my cap. I mean, I, and I survived. <laughs> I did, it didn't turn out as bad as uh, Jack Kent Cook prophesied it would he was right about the league not about succeeding but you know the indiana pacers the utah jazz the uh, and the san antonio teams they did uh survive and uh, and now the the game of basketball is much more exciting you know i here's a footnote i don't know if you knew that i played in the cbs 3 on 3 uh basketball games before the nba playoffs um I forget what the years were back in probably about the time they, that and I was involved with the Oaks. I just not great at keeping up with the dates, but it was three on three a basketball, a half court at the International Hotel in Las Vegas, with an entertainer, uh, a current current pro and a recent ex pro, and it it had every. I was on the court out there with Bob Cousy, and David Thompson and Rick Barry. And, uh, and all kinds of great – Oscar Robertson, did I say? All these players, and they were playing on TV with pros, basketball, for money because the winning team, the winning threesome was going to uh, win 10000 apiece and the second team would get 7000 And my team of David Thompson and Jerry Lucas came in second and, uh, and they call me the Galloping Gramps. I was 44 at that time, but, but already a grandfather. And Dave DeBuscher of, uh, uh, of the Knicks had put the teams together, and then when he found out I was a grandfather, bumped me, but I caught, got him on the phone. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, you're a grandfather. This is serious. We're going to play. We need to play some serious tennis here. I mean, basketball, serious basketball. And I said, look, you put me one-on-one with anybody, any of the other players, and if I don't do very well or beat them, then, uh, then bump me. But otherwise, he said, are you in really good shape? And I said, I am in very good shape. And so they had Marvin Gaye, and they had Bob Conrad, and, and uh, even David Steinberg, who was short, but he knew the game and he could play. In fact, he and Paul Westfall and Sad Sam Jones of the Celtics Beat me and and uh, Lucas and David Thompson in the finals. Uh, this was three on three basketball, and uh, and with pros, boy. And I did score. In fact, the celebrity had to handle the ball in every turnover. You couldn't just stand stand around. And uh, so I scored some. I uh, Lucas. Uh, oh, is it was it Nick Lucas? No, I'm forgetting this great big forward. Last name Lucas, here you know, I had Jerry Lucas on my team, but I went up to try to grab a rebound, and he he came down on top of me, and i I felt purposely bent my arm back the way it can't go and dislocated my shoulder and But the masseur got me back in in the shape where I could continue to play, but I had to handle the ball in every turnover, and I really my my left wing was wounded. But we still went on to come in second and came close to winning the whole thing. And I get I got seven thousand bucks for playing on a on basketball TV for money. And if that's not a Walter Mitty fantasy. <laughs> I don't know what is, but as I say, I've had a lot of great moments like that in my life, in addition to my
1: singing and acting. Well, we got to we got to dig in and find that. So, uh, we, are you uh, you think that was CBS? That was uh, when that aired. Yeah,
0: it was C- it was CBS three on three basketball before the NBA playoffs, and and we played uh, two nights, and uh, and they you know then they sp- spread the games out. I think it was over maybe two or three weeks of three-on-three three basketball before the NBA playoff. Yeah, you know what? If you can find that, it hadn't even occurred to me, because I, I forget sometimes that these things are archived, because it was on television, so there would surely have been tapes.
1: Yeah, and, I I, boy, I, vaguely, I think I vaguely remember it as a kid, and I got to—so uh, uh, so this is this is great, because we like to put this out to our audience who who amazes us, frankly. We've only been doing this for about six or seven months. I'm amazed mm-hmm. at uh, who listens to this, and these are sports diehards that uh, are are, yeah. are are similarly uh, intrigued and/or want to go down the rat hole and find these things. Uh, so let's put it out there to our audience to find these three on three. Pat thinks it's a uh, CBS broadcast that was before the NBA finals. This is when CBS had the rights to those games back in the day. I think yeah. it's, it's probably mm-hmm. this early yeah. mid '70s. I guess I'll bet that.
0: you there's tape archived, and then there's another Tonight Show in which I was I was hosting for Johnny Carson. And um, I think I was hosting. uh, Either I was a guest, but my recollection is I was, because I hosted, guest hosted for him several times. And, um, oh gosh, the player coach, just named player coach of the Celtics, uh, the best defensive player maybe ever, uh, Bill Russell. He had just been signed to be the uh, player coach of the Celtics. And um and so he came on the show and having played ball and even uh scored once well that's another whole story on, on national TV. I mean I I've had a checkered but wonderful, exciting career involving basketball. But anyway, uh he was on and so we talked basketball and he's gonna be a player coach and then it was the Tonight Show producer's idea that there'd be a goal set up and and that we take off our jackets and uh, bill russell teach me something about the game and being the great defensive player that he was i started out, I'm dribbling and um, i say okay coach what are you going to teach me now and i meant it and he said well first because he towered over me in these long spindly arms he says first i'm going to take the ball away from me i was dribbling right handed and he's figuring i can only go to my left and so he didn't know that home by many hours, I had practiced shooting left-handed and right-handed hooks, because I say I'm only 5'11", and other guys towered over me, so I had to have some kind of, some way to shoot, and so Bill Russell leans over me, and he figures you're going to just take the ball out of my hands, and I just pivoted on my right foot and shot a left-handed hook and banked it in over Bill Russell. Now, (laughs) I could have... Just banked it off the rim, and it would have been exciting. But but I banked it in clean over Bill Russell. He said, I quit. I said, oh, no, no, that's not fair. And I said, let me try to defend against you. Well, I'm between him and the basket, and I'm looking at his rear end or his belt line, and he just goes straight up in the air and dunks over me in a spectacular way. And that was, then that's when we went to a commercial. But to have banked a over Bill Russell on national television I asked him eventually several years later I mean maybe 10 years later we were honoring Elton John at a big uh, function and and Bill was there and I said Bill you remember that night he says yeah I remember he was kind of glum faced he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't tickled to think that some that this singer banked in a left-handed hook over me on national television and I just signed to be the coach of the Celtics. Uh, but it was fluky. It was a fluke, I admit. But but it didn't occur to him I might have a left-handed hook.
1: I, I Well, I have, a conf- I have a confession to make. I actually, uh, I heard your episode with uh, Mark Malkoff on the Carson podcast, and I don't think uh, that episode uh, came up, so I'm, I'm uh, I guess, and I don't know Mark, but uh, it's nice to know I have a little coup there on an episode that perhaps that uh, you guys didn't talk about in that previous episode. So we need to find that episode as well. Uh, I, I yeah, that
0: would boy, that would what a trip! You know, I don't, I do these things, but life keeps moving at warp speed, and I just don't think about going back and, and grabbing things that that probably exist.
1: Yeah, but the fact oh, that, would that be the, but the fact that you remember them with such clarity, and uh, look, I mean, uh, we obviously did not uh, on purpose touch on just an absolute uh, treasure trove of a career, and there's no doubt that uh, uh, the the name Pat Boone just is uh, is one of those. Uh, you know, in the pantheon of of uh, American entertainment, right? I mean, and I'm not, I'm not just saying that, right? I mean, clearly, you yeah. are. You are, you know, you you've been at it for, gosh, almost you know, sixty plus years now in 60 stages. Sixty years,
0: yeah. We just we just honored uh, April Love, the movie at the at the Tech in Santa Santa Monica, and they asked me how does it feel to be celebrating something you did sixty years ago. I said, I it does not compute. I, I just had the horrifying realization. I've lived out my socks and underwear. I've outlived them, and I'm going to have to go get some more socks and underwear. I' this has been sixty years.
1: <laughs> well, look, I, we we appreciate you delving back into some of those years into getting into you know a little bit of a nook or a cranny in your uh, in your professional career. and and, you know, again, a bit wistful, I'm sure, but I'm sure some great memories of of a team. And look, a, a championship team and a league that uh, that to your point. Um, You know, made some significant contributions to the professional sport of basketball. And um, I guess sort of the I guess the one sort of last uh, general question I'll ask is um, what else you got going on? It seems to me that uh, you're you're quite the still inveterate entrepreneur and uh, and and business guy, always looking for other things to do to keep active and busy. Uh, Besides that car investment, I guess there's no other sports uh, investments uh, in your future, given your uh, previous travails, huh?
0: No, I see. I, I turned down the opportunity to to be a investor and therefore part owner with the Suns and Phoenix and the Mavericks, and I could have been Mark Cuban's partner <laughs> maybe. Except he would, he he didn't want partners, but, um, but but I the air car is a real thing, and I'm I'm pursuing that whole thing. It's a it's going to be the 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 car beyond battery and alternative fuel cars because. As I told the sharks on the TV show that there is no fuel in the world uh, less expensive, uh, more readily available, more environmentally perfect than air. That's what it takes in, it's what it expels, and that's all, there's no pollution whatsoever. and. And as I say it is a real invention and uh, and it it will power big vehicles right now in france uh the technology the air car air engine technology is powering- he- uh heavy machinery garbage pickup uh trucks and things like that in pro in use right now so uh i'm I'm going to continue to pursue that and with along other channels um but uh, it will happen and I'll maybe Eventually, people look back and say, "Well, you know, Pat Boone had something to do with the with the uh, marketing of the air car, and which which will be as prevalent then as uh, as Fiats and Smart cars and many Coopers are now, uh, and a lot quieter and uh, and a lot less expensive." And when we're running out of fossil fuel, but I've written eight articles. And we're on Daily Newsmax on fusion, nuclear fusion, as what as Amer- as America and the world's need for energy looking forward when we start running out of fossil fuel, and we need something other than uh, than these fuels. And the I know something now about nuclear fusion having been mentored by a scientist who approached me to write articles from a layman's point of view and in layman language. Uh, for a, a broader uh, broader public that knows nothing about it, that we know about nuclear fission. But fusion is, we believe, a God thing. The sun is a nuclear fusion reactor, and that's where we get all of our energy in this planet uh, from the sun. And, uh, and we can replicate that, uh, you know, and, and as research will soon show, uh, much less expensively, with no negative fallout like nuclear fission, which is destroying atoms, where fusion is, is what it says. It's combining helium and other atoms to create massive power. Uh, so I'm involved in that, which I know sounds weird for a singer and an actor, but I've been mentored in it by scientists. So not that I am an expert, but I know enough to to talk about it and write about it with their help and to to try to further it uh, for our future, because whoever controls energy in the rest of this century is going to control the world. But, you know, there are other things that come up. I'm trying not to be involved in costly investments because I've been lucky to come out uh, still solvent (laughs) after some bad experiences being ahead of the curve Uh, And and I won't go into enumerate all of them, but some 20 other investments that many of which have turned out to be successful, but with other people. But I just was ahead of time when I saw something coming around the bend and got involved, but it was too soon.
1: But you're you're still doing some acting, though, right? I I know you were in that. Yeah, I've done
0: three faith-based films recently. And one of them, God's Not Dead 2, has been a box office success. Uh, the other, well, one is Cowgirl Story, which is available on Netflix, in which I play a Marine, a retired Marine chaplain, and I get to recite the 23rd Psalm, which is why I did it, uh, because I thought it was a great opportunity, and, uh, and, a, it's a, it's a, a film that teenagers love, because it's about teenagers, and I did the first teen musical ever, Bernadine, back at the beginning, that was my first film, way, way back, but, um, then the other one is called Boonville Redemption. I want to change the title because that doesn't tell you anything about the film. It's I want to get it retitled Murder in a Small Town. It's it is a a drama. It it starts with the murder of a minister in his church and moves on from there and I play old Doc Woods, the uh, the town doctor. And uh and now I'm getting offered parts like these films I've just mentioned. Uh, that only senior actors can play, <laughs> and and even in God's Not Dead Two, I, I was on a walker. I mean, here I am playing singles tennis still with a partner, and uh, he, he and I are very good friends, but we're very competitive, and we play tennis on the weekends, uh, two and three sets of singles, and we cover the court. And uh, he's uh, he's just a kid. He's only eighty. I'm eighty three but we play full sets of singles and sometimes three sets before we uh, for over two hours. So I'm in good shape and I want to stay that way. Um, but I realize it's not time It's somebody who was much younger than me then said he didn't even buy green bananas. So I'm not going to make long-term investments that, that, uh, that necess- necessitate my capital involvement, but I can help get things started that I believe in, and uh, and watch them grow while I'm here, and that's what I intend.
1: And that's great. That's a that's a that's a, a tremendous uh, a vision, and and frankly, a, a a real good primer for for life in, at any age. And um, you know, uh, the eternally useful Pat Boone has been our our guest, and I, I, I truly this has been a treat, Pat. I I appreciate it, and I also <laughs> appreciate you uh, indulging me going back into not always the most fond memories of of some of your basketball exploits but that's uh that's our little nook and cranny of uh of content out there that we're pursuing and well, you um, really
0: did some you did some homework you you looked up a lot of stuff and and so I'm I'm you it's a compliment to me that you cared to do that and the other thing is if you as a result of this conversation come up with uh, any of the footage that for some reason it just hadn't occurred to me I've asked about uh, the Johnny Carson shows and also Carol Burnett I was on with her the other night and uh, uh, the big networks generally keep a lot of those tapes and so it may just be that my my night where I played with Bill Russell um, and when I another night when I forgot all the words to so one of my Hit songs and had to stop and start over.
1: No, th- this was, that, was, that was the what th- that was the David Letterman uh, hosted episode. Yeah, that, yeah, that was you, yeah. so. So for fr- folks who have not listened to uh, so Mark Malkoff's uh, uh, podcast called the Carson Podcast, and uh, Pat was a guest. I want to say it was about six months ago, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
0: Pat, oh, with Mark, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Pa- Pat has a great story where he talks about. Uh, young David Letterman was guest hosting for Johnny, and uh, and an amazing story of Pat basically forgetting the words to the song. I think not once, but twice, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it was because it, I knew the words. I had a, it was a number one hit record. Everybody's going to have religion and glory, and it was a big hit. But the thought flitted through my mind that I might. Boy, we don't have teleprompter because I didn't think I needed them. But then that thought enters your mind, and I a sudden I realized I'm singing the wrong re- lyrics right now, out of place, and I couldn't find my way back into the song properly, and I just stopped and asked Freddie DeCordova, the producer, if I could start over. But the band was still playing, and the background singers were still going, and, uh, and Freddie was shaking his head no to me, but giving the go-ahead sign, keep going to the orchestra. And so I had to find my way back into the song, and once I did, I, again, my mind starts saying, you fool, you've just made a complete ass of yourself on national television. It's going to show tonight. And while I'm thinking that, I got lost again. And so I just barely got back into it to the know, Oh, yeah, at the last. And uh, and I come over, and Dave Letterman's standing there, in the crowd's cheering. They love to see an entertainer make a fool of himself. So they were cheering like it was something great. And when the applause began to die down, Dave said, Now, folks, we have these auditions every Friday night, so if there's a song you want to try to sing, come on down. <laughs> it was so terribly embarrassing, but I went back two or three weeks later with Teleprompter and sang the song and, and did well. But, uh, but I'll never forget that night, and I've looked for it because I would, I would show it in shows I do now, concerts, because I, I show a good bit of video, in my shows, and uh, I like to show moments I'm really proud of, but I also feel it's only fair if I show a couple of my more embarrassing moments.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good sense of humor. All right, so one last quick question. Did you think, uh, do you remember maybe, uh, d- did you happen to maybe be on uh, The Tonight Show during your Oaks ownership days or maybe other national television shows, maybe promoting the team? Do you remember any of that by any chance?
0: I honestly, I wish I could tell you I do. I don't. I was thinking of another show. Uh, it was ABC tried to combat the Tonight Show, and they went on with a late-night show, and they had me host one night. And Marcus Haynes, because uh, I did play in some of those games with the Harlem Globetrotters, and uh, and Marcus Haynes was on. You know, he was the incredible ball handler. He could just dribble. And, uh, and so he was going to show off on our show and i was supposedly going to try to you know defend him and give him a chance to go around me and over me and it but it occurred to me the dribbler that he was he's probably going to try to come come up close and dribble right between my legs and run around me and grab it on the other side and so sure enough when that happened i i had dropped my hand down and caught the ball as it went through my legs Turned and sh- and went to the basket and scored on Marcus Haynes. <laughs> I mean, it didn't prevent him from do- showing off and show- you know doing everything he came to do. But I did at least uh, show I knew something about the game and I could uh, do a layup. But I-, I happened to catch the ball as he as he was going to bounce it right between my legs and I caught it behind my back. So, but that was on a different show. I think it- I forget what it's called, Midnight or. It couldn't have been called tonight, but it was called something like that. ABC.
1: It wasn't. Was it Into the Night with uh, Ro, uh, Alan Thick? Uh No,
0: no. It was. It was. I think before that, and uh, uh, it. I just don't know what. I can't think of the name of it. I just remember that one episode.
1: Well, it, it's more. And it's more research I need to do. So I, I appreciate the homework assignment.
0: Well, okay. Well, look, I'm glad to to know that you cared that much, and give me a chance to kind of relive some of those, uh, fun moments.
1: Wow. What a conversation. That was fantastic. I, I man, I, you know, this is a, a legendary entertainment figure of our, of our generation. Uh, he's been at it for 60 plus years. And, uh, the, uh, the fact that, uh, that Pat Boone would uh, take an hour out of his, uh, busy holiday schedule to talk to little old me about, uh, a musty little corner in sports history, that being the two-year ownership journey uh, of his ABA franchise, the Oakland Oaks. I, uh, I you know, I, I'm just uh, flabbergasted, and uh, I can't thank him enough for uh, for taking time uh, and his assistant, Robin, for securing his time uh, to talk with us and regaling us in some of those stories, wistful uh, as they may have been, uh, and we, uh, we appreciate it uh, deeply. Um, if uh, you want to keep up with what Pat is doing, and as you can tell, uh, there is no shortage of things that Pat uh, continues to do in his career. Uh, you can go to patboon.com, and that's where you'll find everything related to what Pat is up to, whether that be recordings or performances or trips to the Holy Land, movies, you name it. Uh, Pat's, uh, Pat's working on it. So uh, patboon.com, that's the place to go. Now, in addition to that, uh, we want to throw it out to our listeners, as we kind of hinted at you know, the tail end of our, our interview with Pat, we got to find that video and some, uh, you know, uh, of that uh, CBS NBA three-on-three uh, championship, a little series. Uh, we were able to determine that uh, that was, uh, of course, when uh, CBS was broadcasting the NBA, and uh, we believe it was uh, in uh, in the spring of 1978, and uh, we think those vignettes were uh, aired uh, prior to the various playoff games and finals matches. Uh, that CBS broadcast of the NBA in 1978. So uh, good luck finding that on YouTube. Can't be found. But if anybody who uh, can uh, get some access to the CBS vaults and can find that uh, CBS NBA three-on-three tournament that Pat was uh, part of along with other celebrities and pro stars, we'd love to find some, uh, some video footage of that uh, too. So uh, let us know and uh, don't be shy. Uh, And uh, one of uh, the many ways that you uh, don't have to be shy is to go to our website. That's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's probably the best and most efficient place to find where we are, how you can contact us directly via email, etc. And you will also find links to all of our previous episodes and the various media, uh, whether they be books or CDs or videos or whatever uh, of our various guests. Uh, and you will also find links to our various social media accounts as well. But you can you can shortcut that, of course, by going to our Twitter uh, handle, which is Good Seats Still or at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, you'll find a page uh, devoted to us on Facebook, so you can like us there. And of course, wherever you're listening to this show or downloading it from, please indeed rate and review and give us some big thumbs up and stars or whatever and some nice commentary if you would. Uh, in those places as well we appreciate that love that keeps our uh, little algorithm uh, growing and uh, hopefully gets our show uh, recommended and in front of other folks like you who uh who enjoy this show and uh, would like to hear more one last thing we want to thank our friends at podfly productions of course for their uh, ace production uh, capabilities podfly.net is the place to go if you need some podcast help or want to get started and in particular our friend jerry payne who uh Uh, bends over backwards each week to uh, put our little pieces together into something that's comprehensible. And um, this week, of course, is no exception. Again, podfly.net, Podfly Productions. All right, I'm done. Thank you so much again to our guest, Pat Boone. And uh, we look forward to uh, joining you in 2018 with a whole bevy of uh, amazing guests yet to come. Thank you for your listenership. And uh, we'll see you soon here on the show. I
2: can't hold it on the road When you're sitting right beside me And I'm drunk out of my mind Merely from the fact that you are here And I have not been known as the saint of San Joaquin But I'm just as soon right now Pull on over to the side of the road line out before me when your hand is on my collar and you're talking in my ear why I once ran around with a gypsy girl named Shannon of San Joaquin.